Ah, the church. Uh, you know, when I, when I watched that video, I, man, I tell you what, that guy at the, last, uh, at the end there is a breath of fresh air. I, up until then, it's like, man, I want to tell him, you know, what this thing is all about. But the question is, what is it all about, you know, the church? Uh, the, um, this, this weekend, we are, <coughs> we are celebrating Reformation Sunday. We're, we're celebrating <coughs> that uh, event that happened now 501 years ago. This week, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Church door, and last year we had the big blowout celebration with a 500-year uh, anniversary of that, uh, Pat uh, walked in and tried to sell you all indulgences, said it didn't work out too well, he was hoping for better this year, um, but uh, I'm not so sure that's going to happen. Uh, however, with the Reformation, and as significant as that was, what it was really all about, really, was the church. Because what Luther was posting on that church door, and it was a church door that he posted them on, were, were statements of faith and practice for the church. He thought the church was valuable enough to be worth reforming. So he posted these statements there, hoping that maybe there would be some scholars that would debate him about these kinds of things, and that the result would be a reformation of the church because the, the world badly needs the church to be the church. Luther said this quote uh, about the church. He said, we need to pledge ourselves anew to the cause of Christ. We must capture the spirit of the early church. Wherever the early Christians went, they made a triumphant witness for Christ. Whether on the village streets or in the city jails, they daringly proclaimed the good news of the gospel. And those words, the gospel, that literally means good news. And it would be what a courier that's coming back from battle would hopefully be shouting to report the results of the battle as they came into the town. They would shout, gospel, gospel, good news. And these messengers from the early church were people that would go out into the community, into the world, and they would shout, gospel, gospel, good news. Your heavenly Father desperately desires for you to come back home. He's sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world for you, to find you, to search and find you, to bring you to him. It's good news, and it's worth proclaiming. Now, in the Bible... The way that that would be proclaimed would be through this thing that we call the church. In the early church, you know, it was, it was something that was a brand new kind of an idea. The, the Romans didn't know quite to make, what to make of this group that was called the church. They, they would imagine all kinds of weird things going on behind those doors, and, and the people, they would gather together, together, they would meet in houses, they would... They would, they would then go out and they would serve their community. They would, they would be people that would make a difference in the lives of the people around them. In the, book of, in the New Testament, we can find this book that's called the Book of Acts, and it's really the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Early Church. And there we can witness this, this early church being, being born in Acts chapter 16, and we can pick it up on verse 13. What happens here is that Paul goes around the Mediterranean Sea sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And when he does this, he's like that courier coming into town shouting good news. And when he, do, when he does this, normally what he, he will do is he will go to the local synagogue in the town where he'd be welcomed as a visiting scholar 
And he would share with them about Jesus, which was certainly more than what the synagogue rulers probably had in mind when they invited him to speak. But on this particular occasion, he went to this town that was called Philippi. And Philippi is near what we understand as Greece. Okay, it's in the area of Macedonia. And uh, he went there, and apparently they were not exactly the most receptive place. They didn't even have a synagogue in that town. So Paul looked instead for a place where maybe some believers might gather, some, some Jews might gather, and he could share with them about Jesus. So we pick it up on verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And with that, we witness the birth of a brand new church. And the very first convert, the very first member of this church is a woman. Now that's significant because of this reason, that, that during that time of the early church, it was a very male-dominated, male-centric kind of a culture. Women were not held up in a, a great deal of esteem. So when the Christian faith was proclaimed, however, it was proclaimed with a message that our world today badly needs to hear. And it is this, in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We live in a very divided time, right? A very divided land, a very divided world, and, and it has caused all kinds of problems. What a novel thing to think that we could all be one in Jesus. You know, no matter what we look like, what our backgrounds might be, whatever that might be, you know, in addition to this time here on Sunday morning and Saturday night when we gather for worship, there's also another group of people that meet in the building that, that gather for worship as well. That's, that's a group that meets in the chapel several times a month um, on Sunday evenings, and it's led by Pastor Noah, and that's a group that uh, reaches out to the Indian community in the Canton-Plymouth area. And that is a group that may not look a whole lot like a lot of us here, but we're all one in Christ. You know, we may not meet even at the same time, but we're all one in Christ. That's the kind of message that we need. It's something that will make us one in Christ. It's something that we badly need today. Now, Philip, or excuse me, uh, Philippi, uh, the city that, that Paul went to, was a place that was kind of significant because it was a Roman colony. It was a place that uh, worshipped all of the Greek gods and, you know, because they're not, there's no synagogue there, we can see that it was a place that really was not all that friendly to any kind of a message about the Lord. And yet Paul went there anyway, began that church, and later on he would write this letter to them that became what we now know as the book of Philippians in our New Testament. And there in that book, Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes these words as we read someone else's mail. He says to them, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And skipping down to verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
Now, with that, you know, it, it sounds kind of nice. You know, he's, he's expressing affection, all this kind of thing. But here's the thing, is that Paul literally was in chains at the time that he wrote these words. He was in prison, and he may not live through it. He likely would not live through it. Now, a lot of people would, would expect that in that kind of a situation, if somebody would write a letter, it would be something that is more about themselves. It would be something like, oh, woe is me. You know, I am in prison here. I'm going to die. Uh, these, these shackles on my wrists and on my feet, on my, on my ankles, are chafing my skin. You know, whatever it might be. They would be writing about themselves, but Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he, what he's concerned about is them. He's concerned about them and expressing love and affection for them. What gives here? This is an unusual kind of a thing. Well, here's, here's, here's you know, something I'd like to share with you today is, is a conversation that I had with my youngest son, Robert, a number of weeks ago. I, I shared this with a few people here already in the church, but uh, share it with all of you. And, and what, what that is is this, is that you know, we were talking about the events that were taking place in the country. And Robert is, you know, way out there on the fringes of the faith these days, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, you know, he was expressing some kind of way out there kinds of views on things. And then he said, you know, everybody's just in it for themselves. I don't care who you are. Everybody's just in it for themselves. So what would you expect? I mean, everybody's just all about themselves. And I said, that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. Because with Jesus, we have the only place, really, where we get this kind of a message where we have this foundational belief that a person would go from self-centered to Christ-centered, from self-centered to other-centered, that Jesus himself even taught that if you want to be great, if you want to be the greatest, you'll be the servant of the rest, and you'll make it about other people, that the greatest commandments are loving God with everything you got and loving your neighbor as yourself. And that is a message that is unique to Christianity, that you don't get out there in the world. And that is a message that we badly need to hear today. But, you know, God has given us so many good things, and one of those things is, is that he understands who we are as individuals. And yet our world has taken that and twisted it. God expresses that he knows you before you're even born. I mean, that is an individual kind of love and care for you. And yet the world takes that and twists it around and makes it into individualism which is all about me. That the world needs to be all about me, and the result is what we have seen in this messed up world, when everyone is all about themselves, and it makes it into self-centeredness. But we need something different than that. Now, what, one thing that that leads to, one of the casualties is relationships, so that we wind up with a, a heightened loneliness in this country. We could say even an epidemic of loneliness. There's one article that I came across that writes about it this way. It says, America is increasingly a lonely nation. The proportion of American adults who say they are lonely has increased from 20% to 40% since the 1980s. Now, not coincidentally, by the way, in that same period of time, the church and its influence in the world has decreased. So while loneliness has radically increased, it happens at the same time that the church has decreased. Roughly 43 million adults, it says, over the age of 45 are estimated to suffer from chronic loneliness. 43 million. The uncommitted to community report higher rates of loneliness 
The uncommitted to communities such as the church have higher loneliness. Consider that just three decades ago, it writes, the typical American had a little over three close friends. Today, he or she barely has one confidant. Often, someone's closest companion is staring at him in the mirror. The church is needed, badly needed today, to address what's going on in the world, including this problem of loneliness, including the problem of individualism. Now, C.S. Lewis was part of a group of friends, and for some, that's a famous group of friends. It's uh, made up of uh, writers like C.S. Lewis. One of them was J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, who uh, wrote The Lord of the Rings, and, uh, and also the author Charles Williams. And they would get together, and they would talk, and they would share, and they would laugh, and they would support one another. And then Charles Williams passed away suddenly after World War II. And uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about this. Timothy Keller in Prodigal God shared his, his uh, words as well when he said these words after Charles Williams' death. He said, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles Williams is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, that's Tolkien's, reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the awareness which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, 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 to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. And that is the church. The church is a collection of people where we gain more in our knowledge and understanding and our experience of God because of the other people who are here, because we can see God in one another. God is reflected in them in such a way that we could not get on our own. It's like we talked about up here with, you know, playing football in the backyard by yourself versus having a team, others to share it with. That's what the church is about. We were created for togetherness. We were created for the church. And so, Jesus and his disciples, who were also a little band of the church, his little group of the church, went on a journey. And they went on a journey to a very strange place because they went outside of Jewish territory. They went into very much Gentile territory, very much pagan territory. It was up to the north of the Sea of Galilee, and up there there was this place that they chose to camp out by. Who knows why? It doesn't say. But there they were in this place that was well known through the hundreds of years for being the place of Baal worship. Now, Baal was the god in the Old Testament, the false god that would, uh, the practice of that religion would draw the Israelites away from the worship of the Lord and ultimately led for the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and the disappearance of those tribes. And this was the place that was known as the center 
of Baal worship. But these days, when Jesus and his little band of followers known as the church went there, it was no longer Baal who was worshipped, but rather it was Pan. They had updated it. And there was this cave that was used once upon a time for Baal worship that now was involved in this worship of Pan. And outside of this cave, there was a temple where Caesar was worshipped. So it was this civil kind of religion that was taking place there. They would sacrifice animals in the temple, and there inside the cave was this deep, deep pool of water, large spring that fed into this pool of water. And the the water pool was so deep, they thought it was bottomless. They thought that there was no end to it. And they believed over the years that this was the gateway to the underworld, that this was the gateway to the dead. So they would take these, uh, these carcasses of these animals that they just sacrificed in the temple, and they would throw them into the, into the uh, opening of, of uh, the cave where there was this pool. They would land in the pool. And if the carcass sank into the pool, they believed that Pan accepted their sacrifice, accepted their offering. And if the, if the carcass floated in the pool, they believed that Pan rejected their offering. Well, you know what that place was called? It was called the gates of Hades. So there Jesus and his little band of the church were gathered around a fire one night when Jesus turns to them and asks them this question, who do people say that I am? And they come up with all kinds of harebrained, wild kinds of things. So finally he turns to them and says, okay, okay, who do you say that I am? To which Peter stood up and he said, in the face. Now keep in mind, this is in the middle of hostile territory here, where the gods of the land were civil religion and the worship of Pan and the history of false idol worship. And they seemed all powerful. And there he stood up in the middle of that in this little church that seemed to have, you know, no power whatsoever. He said, well, you're the Messiah. You're the, you're the promised one. You're the Savior. You're the one who's come into the world because you are the Son of God. To which Jesus said, you're no longer Simon, but you're Peter, meaning rock. And on this rock, now when you saw it, talking about this rock, we, you know, some people I think confuse that with Peter because Peter's actually one who's going to stand for Jesus sometimes, not stand for Jesus sometimes. He can be kind of fickle. But there's something that Peter just did that Jesus is referring to, and that is this testimony about Jesus and who he is in the midst of all of these other forces. And Jesus says, on you I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Meaning that all of these things that are around you, the forces of evil, all of these things in civil religion, all of these things that people worship, all these things that seem so powerful in this life, none of that will prevail against the church that is built on a profession of faith. Now, these days, you know, we can experience all kinds of things uh, in our lives where we can think, man, you know, turn on, just turn on the news and, holy, you know, there's another shooting. It, it looks like Satan is winning. We can think, how in the world can the church possibly stand against this? How in the world can the forces of good possibly do anything? 
Well, and then we have our song that we sang today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which has got some powerful words to it, like these. The hordes of devils fill the land, all threatening to devour us. We tremble not, unmoved we stand. They cannot overpower us. This world's prince may rage, in fierce war engage. He is doomed to fail. God's judgment must prevail. One little word subdues him. And what is that little word? It's when his church stands up like Peter, stands up like those reformers during the Reformation, and says, no, this church is worth something. The church is the hope of the world. The church is the bearer of that good news. The church bears that message about the possibility of a world where people actually exist for others instead of for themselves. When the church is the church, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So the question is, what about you? What about me? Are we willing to make that stand? Are we willing to be the church that this world desperately needs? These are not just words. These are actions. Are we willing to be that church? If so, then our world will not be the same. It will be transformed. Let's be the church.